One of the doctrines which we as evangelical believers hold closely is the doctrine of scriptural or biblical inerrancy. Now, when I say the word evangelical, there is a definition that includes this idea that you believe in scriptural inerrancy. Now, what that means is we believe that the Bible, as originally written in Hebrew and Greek and some parts in Aramaic, we believe that that was inspired by God in such a way that every word, every word is without error and therefore true faithful, and trustworthy. And most of us know this truth is expressed in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture. How much? All. All Scripture is inspired or literally breathed out by God. He's the ultimate source. Now, it is true that God did not erase the personalities of the authors. What I mean by that is you can tell the differing writing styles, even personalities of different biblical authors. For example, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, I have talked a lot about what Mark wrote, how he wrote it, and why he wrote it. You see, in most cases, God did not verbally dictate what would be written. All right, listen up, Mark, and write this down. That's not, that's not the way that he did it. But... By His Spirit, He superintended what would be written such that, this is incredibly important, every word is exactly what He wanted and therefore trustworthy to be believed and frankly obeyed. In fact, our Alliance Bible Fellowship doctrinal statement um, says it like this in its very first statement concerning the, the Word of God it begins the doctrinal statement. It says this, we believe the Bible consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments is the Word of God fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, not going to get into translation debate, in the original manuscripts written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Further, We believe God has faithfully preserved His Word such that it is fully reliable and trustworthy today. That means the Bible that you have in your laps or on your device is fully trustworthy. Now, students, college students, high school students, no matter where you go, you will be told in some classrooms, not all classrooms, in some classrooms, and And in some churches and in some conversations with other believers, that inerrancy is not that big a deal. After all, the Bible, this is where the argument goes, the Bible was written by fallible men and therefore contains error. And it is now our responsibility to determine what is fallible and what is not, what is truth and what is error. Of course, you understand that we then become the judges of or the authority over the Word of God, self-determining what we will believe and, frankly, what we will dismiss. Then the logical questions become, who determines what is right and what is wrong? Who? Who determines what is trustworthy and what is not? Who becomes the authority over the Bible. And what happens 
When, when I disagree with you concerning what is right and what is wrong, and, and you disagree with me, who is, is right? And some profs or teachers will tell you, well, they are. And we are left in a muddled, uncertain mess. And I believe, as a result, the whole house of cards eventually comes tumbling down. Exactly. This is the unintentional and honestly sometimes intentional result of questioning the complete veracity, that word means the complete truthfulness of the Word of God, all all of it. Why do I bring this up today besides the fact that we find ourselves in our culture in deteriorating biblical confidence? Because the text before us today has come under much attack, Not, not so much because of the miracle it records, although that is also questioned or explained away or altogether dismissed, but, but, but because of the, the way the story is told. In fact, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8 in our continuing study of this gospel. Let's begin by reading the first 10 verses of this chapter of, to find this, this strangely familiar story. Mark Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, say this. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, well, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And Jesus, he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. You go, what? No, no, no wait a minute. I know the story. It's not, he says seven is five. And, and, he, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small, a few small fish. No, they didn't. I remember this story. They had two. And after he had blessed them, the fish, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. And about 4,000 were there. No, 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 no. Somebody can't count. I remember this story. It was 5,000, not 4,000. And he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples, came to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, some of you who perhaps haven't been here, you say, say, gosh, I I remember this story from my Sunday school days. I I, I think I've heard this before, but it wasn't five loaves. Uh, Excuse me. It wasn't seven loaves. It was five loaves. And wasn't it it two fish? And, And then others of you who have been here, uh, say, now, now, wait just a minute. I mean, this story is familiar. We, we just heard this same story a couple of chapters ago in, in chapter 6, and you called it the feeding of the 5,000. Huh. I mean, it can't possibly be that Jesus does the same thing again, right? They will tell you. 
So, so, so Mark must have made a mistake. He recorded the same story again, but it wasn't much of a numbers guy. He mixed up the numbers, which, which is what some suggest. I mean, after all, consider the similarities between the two stories. In both stories, told two chapters apart, there's this large crowd of hungry people. Who ever heard of a large crowd of hungry people? As you think of lunch. In, in both stories, they had nothing to eat. I trust that's true right now, unless you came through the comments. And, and in both stories, Jesus had compassion on them. And in both stories, somebody's concerned that they, if they leave without eating, they won't make it home. And in both stories, Jesus has the people recline on the ground. And, and in both stories, Jesus takes some bread and, oh, yeah, you just got to throw this all together. There are so many similarities. He takes some bread and fish, thanks God for them, breaks them up, gives them to the disciples who distribute the food, and the people eat until they're all satisfied. And then a well, a bunch of baskets of leftovers are collected. <laughs> it must be the same story. I mean, besides, I mean, think about it. Come on. If, if the disciples had just seen Jesus feed a large crowd of people just two chapters ago, I mean, really, would they ask, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy all these people? <laughs> they must have been winking. <laughs> and then, no, after all, they, they wouldn't have been asking that question. They're such a bright group after all. <laughs> oh, to be sure, there are some differences in the story, the two stories as well. And, you know, in the first one, they're up on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And, and in this one, clearly, they're on the southeastern shore. And in that first one, he's feeding some Jews. And in the second one, we're going to find he's feeding some Gentiles. What's the difference between Jews and Gentiles anyway? What indeed? And sure, the, the, the menu was the same, but, that, but the first one, there were f five loaves of bread and two fish, but this one, there are seven loaves and a, and a few fish. And in, in that first one, there were 5,000 men alone who were fed, besides women and children, and probably 15,000 plus. And, and in this one, there are 4,000 fed. And by the way, Matthew tells us 4,000 men besides women and, and, and children, so 12,000 plus. What's the difference of 4,000 people between friends? And in the, in the first one, there are 12 baskets of leftovers. In the second one, there are seven baskets. And in that first one, Jesus sends his disciples away in the boat. And then he comes walking on the water to them. I remember that story. But in this one, he goes in the boat with them. But still, despite the differences, Mark must have made a mistake. And accidentally or intentionally recorded the same story twice. You know how it is with the telephone game. You whisper something into someone's ear who whispers into the next person's ear and so on. By the time you get to the end of the line, the story's all mixed up. Five loaves become seven loaves because, after all, five plus two fish is seven. <laughs> and 5,000 becomes 4,000. Same story. Mark just made a mistake. It's just a little mistake that we have in, in the Word of God, but it is an error nonetheless. An error in the Bible. And so then my question becomes, how, how much of this can you trust? And, and besides, the, then we have, this, we have this little conversation between 
Jesus and his 12 disciples that, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. He, he tells the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples mistakenly think, being the bright group that they are, while Jesus is telling us not to eat the bread of the Pharisees. And so Jesus uh, says this in verses 18 and following, just a few verses from now. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets you picked up? And they said, well, 12. And, and when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets did you, large baskets did you pick up? And they said, well, seven. Huh. Hmm. So, so if Mark was confused, so was Jesus. If Mark made a mistake... So did Jesus. He was confused about how many times he did this miracle. Jesus thought there were two stories. Or he fabricated a story. And, 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 and so what we have is one of the following three options. First, Mark and Jesus were both confused and frankly mistaken about how many feeding stories there actually were, which reveals, I think, a bigger problem because not only is the Word of God wrong, <laughs> the Son of God is wrong. Or, second possibility, Mark was confused. And he made up this conversation between Jesus and the twelve. Again, not only was he mistaken, but he intentionally fabricated. That's a nice way of saying he lied. But there, you see, there is a third oper uh, possibility, and that is that there were two feeding miracles. <laughs> well, one uh, up north in Bethsaida and one down south in Decapolis. And since we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, all of a sudden it makes sense why I began where I did. Since we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we believe that Jesus was the perfect Son of God, and we believe then that there were two big buffets. And so the question we really have to ask is not whether or not there is a mistake in the Word of God. We start from the very reasonable presupposition that there is not. We rather than start with the question, why is this story here? And then we remember, without erasing the personality of the author, why does the author, the human author, Mark, and Matthew, for that matter, record these two very similar stories so closely together. What was Mark's purpose? Better question, what was the ultimate author's, the Holy Spirit's purpose? <laughs> to confuse us, to make us scratch our heads, to give cannon fodder to liberals who want to attack the veracity of the Word of God, to cause us to be bored with two very similar stories? Or is there something else? And if you've been coming to this church any period of time, you likely know I have something else. This is where context, the context of Mark's story within his larger narrative is important once again. By the way, just a little aside, there are other clues in this stories which make it abundantly clear that they were not, in fact, could not be the same story. For example, we have noted this, when Jesus recounts the two stories, he notes the differences in the number of people fed. He notes the differences in the number of loaves and, and the number of fish used. He also notes the differences in the number of, uh, of baskets of leftovers collected. Why? He even notes uh, the, 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 um, the difference in the baskets used 
to collect the leftovers. R really? Yes. Because every word is true and important. Did you notice when Jesus spoke to the disciples concerning these two stories, in verse 19, he spoke of baskets being used, but then in verse 20, he spoke of large baskets. Why would he do that? Because there are two different words for baskets used here, and the second one speaks of large baskets. We're going to talk about that in a, in a minute. The point is, these are clearly and obviously, upon careful examination, two different stories. So listen to me. Do not be sucked into believing it is a so-called doublet that Mark either mistakenly or even purposely used the same story twice, creating something that never happened. There goes the truthfulness of the Word of God, and I'm suggesting the truth of Christianity. Do, don't, do, do not believe that you can dismiss this and hang on to Jesus. And don't believe that there are errors. Simply not true. Your Bible is fully true, trustworthy, reliable, faithful. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this today, besides the fact that our, all of our students are back today? Be because at the end of the discussion of inerrancy, the very truthfulness of the Word of God is at stake, and the very foundation of Christianity weighs in the balance. I want you to understand that people who oppose the Christian faith know that. So if they can shake your trust in the Bible, they know they got you. They've won. And you will likely abandon the Christian faith, even if their arguments don't hold water or bread, as it were. So let's briefly make our way through this story We'll do it briefly since they're quite similar. Then ask and answer by way of conclusion the question, why is it here? Let's follow this brief outline. We're going to see the setting for the miracle and then the story of the miracle itself. And then the purpose for the miracle, again, asking and answering that why question. So let's look at the setting. And, 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 and by setting or context, I mean, let's remember the context of this section of Mark this is why we do verse-by-verse verse study, the context of this section of Mark. Let's remember where they are geographically. That's incredibly important. And then let's remember the context within the story, the events leading to this large crowd of hungry people. So we're going to examine three contextual settings. First, let's remember the context of this section of, uh, of Mark that actually began in the last chapter. Do you remember in Mark's, uh, you remember, remember Mark ended chapter 6 with his summary statement of Jesus' healing ministry. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, we find this delegation of scribes and Pharisees came to Jerusalem, or excuse me, came to Galilee from Jerusalem. They were there to confront and discredit this would-be rabbi named Jesus. Stop right there. I am suggesting that it is always, rabbis are teachers. It has always been the intent of some teachers, not all teachers, 
It has been the intent of some to seek to discredit Jesus. They've always been trying to do that. And here we are 2,000 years later. And his truth still stands. Upon arriving, the first thing these, this delegation notices is that Jesus' disciples did not observe the tradition of, of the elders. Namely, they did not wash their hands just the right way before they ate. We found then that this didn't really have anything to do with personal hygiene. Rather, this was a, 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 a ceremonial, ritualistic washing to, to cleanse them from defilement, especially from you, from Gentiles. So Jesus took that opportunity, as they're accusing his disciples of this, to teach them something about true defilement. Remember that? He said that true defilement does not come from the outside. You do not get defiled. You do not become defiled by eating unclean food. Listen, don't you understand that what you eat passes into the stomach and then is eliminated? Don't, don't you know that? Gives them a little biology lesson. And listen, you don't get defiled by touching Gentiles either. No, he says true defilement um, does not come from the outside. It comes from the inside. It comes from the heart. Because out of the heart comes sinful actions. And then Jesus went on to give a list that I won't review this morning. Here was, however, his point. The Pharisees and lots of legalistic systems today, in fact, lots of false religions today, suggest that being holy is achieved by these external actions. And Jesus shows up and was teaching that holiness is and has always been an internal issue. It has always been a matter of the heart. Nothing to do with what's going on out here. So, after that teaching, he then leaves Galilee to live out in, in living color what he has just taught. The context is incredibly important. He travels northwest to, to Tyre. It's a Gentile city where he heals the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. She's a Gentile. Then he travels further north to Sidon, further into Gentile territory. He travels around the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee into Decapolis, a predominantly Gentile area in modern-day Jordan. That's the geographical context for the story that's about to take place. He is in Gentile country. There, in the Decapolis, last week, we saw him heal, presumably, a Gentile man of deafness and muteness. And do you remember how he did it? He touched him. He put his fingers in the man's ears and he doesn't become unclean. The man becomes clean through Jesus' healing. That's the way Jesus does it. He touches us. And rather than him becoming unclean, we become clean. In so doing, Jesus was proving to be the fulfillment. So we ended last week of Isaiah 35, that God... Uh, had come to provide healing for people, all people, to include Gentiles. And that brings us to this feeding of the 4,000. Yes, it is basically the same miracle, but the beneficiaries of the miracle are dramatically different. They're Gentiles. And rather than being uh, uh, bored with or 
uh, thinking it's a familiar story that we've already heard, it should thrill our hearts because it includes us. We are supposed to notice this is a new audience. The, the coming of God in the person of Jesus, the promise of the gospel is, is to more than just Jews. It is to the ends of the earth. This brings us to the miracle itself. Now remember, when Matthew records this, this period of time in the Decapolis, he gives us one of his summaries of Jesus' healing ministry there. So Jesus is healing all kinds of people in Decapolis, namely Gentiles. You remember that from last week. While there, uh, large crowds came to him, and he healed those who were lame and crippled and blind and mute and, and many others. And the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And, and they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. That's what this is all about. This is why he does anything that he does for you is so that you will glorify the God of Israel. And this healing service we saw last week became a worship service. And so now we flip back to Mark and we find that this large crowd had been there in this worship service for three days. Glory of glory. A three-day worship service. Can you imagine? It would be like a Christian Woodstock. Only without the drugs. Uh, and notice Mark ties the context together with the words, in those days, see words are important, in those days while he's hanging out in Decapolis, there's a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. And notice that word again. A again, you see, we're supposed to notice that. If you trace that back, the last time we saw the word large crowd was at the feeding of the 5,000. So Mark wants us to understand. Now I'm talking about something again. I'm talking about something different. Now again, there is a large crowd, a separate event. After this large crowd had been there for three days, they're hungry. And again, they had nothing to eat. And Jesus had compassion on them. We've seen that particular word many times before. It's the word splankna, which speaks of the guts. Uh, most, people, most often it's used of Jesus and his feeling toward people. I feel compassion. I feel in the very pit of my stomach for them. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. After all, some of them have come from a long distance. Then I'll have to heal them all over again. So Jesus expresses his compassion for them. Will you please notice that? I love that about my Savior. I love that about Jesus. Yes, he surely came because he cares about our spiritual eternal need. He, he came to give his life a ransom for many, to provide forgiveness and eternal salvation for us. But not only that, he cares about our physical needs as well. Notice here, he, he heals. But not only does he heal, he even cares about our daily needs. He feeds us. That's why he tells us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, give us this day our daily bread. Where does your daily bread come from? Your wallet? Not hardly. We have a God who cares about big things like salvation and health. It all comes from him. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. He also cares about things like daily bread. Disciples, I'm concerned about these people. I feel compassion. 
Disciples look at one another and incredulously say, where will anyone stop right there? They are in the presence of God himself. They don't get it yet. They're in the presence of God himself who approved himself to be the one. Where will anyone? Well, I don't know. Maybe Jesus is waving his hand. I think I can do it. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? You would think that they would remember the feeding of the 5,000 a couple of chapters ago. We remember. (laughs) What's wrong with these guys? Then we remember that Mark is building a case for the dullness, the spiritual dullness of the disciples. They're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And neither are you. You see, I'm going to suggest... Just like he opened the, the ears of the deaf man last week, and the next couple of weeks he's going to open the eyes of a blind man, so also Jesus had to open our ears and open our eyes, or we would never see and we would never hear. He's acting out some parables. So Jesus simply asked, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. Brings us to the second point. Very quickly, the miracle itself. The people were directed to sit on the ground. Jesus gave thanks, broke the bread, gave it to the disciples. That should sound familiar. Gave thanks, broke bread, gave it to the disciples. He kept on giving it to the, the disciples. That's the, that's the, uh, the, uh, the, the word in, in the Greek, who keeps on giving it um, to the crowds until they were all filled. They ate till they were satisfied. He did the same thing with the fish. This is becoming right now ho-hum by now. All right, we get it. So Jesus can take some bread and multiply. Can we move on? He multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands of Jews, but I want you to notice now he does the same thing to feed thousands of Gentiles. That should make you happy. Because I'm suggesting if, the, 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 if there was no chapter 8, we might be in big trouble. Picked up the leftovers, there were seven baskets. You say, wait, no, wait, seven baskets? No, no. He fed fewer of them, and there are seven baskets. Last time there were 12 baskets. Spoke, you said that that spoke of, uh, of Jesus' provision for the 12. You said, all right, disciples, you feed them. Don't worry about your own needs. You serve. I'll take care of you. And he did, but why only seven baskets this time? Didn't he like the Gentiles as much? I thought that about Jesus. Was he mad at the disciples? <laughs> Did he make a miscalculation? After all, they are Gentiles like us. They can probably eat a lot. <laughs> I mean, after all, they hadn't eaten for three days. Does any of that figure in? I don't think so. Remember, I suggested that there are two words in the Greek for the word basket. Don't you love that? There are always two words for everything in the Greek, which is, by the way, the reason God chose Greek to write the New Testament because it is a wonderful and precise language. The word in chapter 6 for basket speaks of a small lunch basket, uh, enough for the 12. The the word here is different. It speaks of a large basket, which is why it's translated large basket in verse 19 or verse 20. It's more like a hamper. It's used for carrying things on a journey. It'll think of a large duffel bag. It wasn't normally used for food. The same word is used incidentally in in, uh, Acts chapter 9 where Paul is lowered out of the window uh, outside of Damascus. These baskets were big enough to hold a man. The point is that there there was lots of leftover food. 
Lot, lot, lots of leftover f- food. He fed the Gentiles abundantly. Even though the number fed was 4,000, remember Matthew tells us 4,000 men besides women and children, which means that Decapolis National Park Service estimated the crowd at 12 to 16,000 people. Now, there is something else that I do not want us to miss here. Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people from seven loaves and a few fish. And I know we, we talked about this in chapter 6, lots of explanations trying to explain that away. He had hit food hidden in a cave, and he, you know, just kind of got it from the disciples secretly. No, this is a miracle. But I want you to understand that he could have just as easily have fed them from right where th- they were, meaning him and his disciples. I mean, he did not have to make the disciples be waiters. He fed the Israelites in the wilderness with no help. Remember, he made manna rain down from heaven. The people just had to bend over and pick it up. Here he could have just multiplied the food and made it mysteriously appear in their pockets. All right, everybody reach in your right pocket. He could have done that. He could have turned the stones that were all over the ground into bread. Remember, Satan tempted him to do that. Jesus had the power. to. He could have done that. He didn't. Why? I would suggest it was teaching the disciples. Who were these? Yes, the disciples fed their Jewish brothers and sisters before, but who were these people these Jewish disciples were now serving? Dirty, rotten Gentiles. I'm suggesting they were being taught a lesson about compassion, but not only compassion. They, had no, they no doubt had to touch the crowd as they distributed the food. And when they collected the leftovers, those filthy Gentiles had their germs all over the food. You see, the Pharisees would never have touched the Gentiles. They never would have touched this leftover food, and they never would have eaten it. Jesus is reminding them, it is not what enters into a man that defiles a man. It is what proceeds out of the man that defiles him. Another simple object lesson for the disciples and, frankly, for us. Food does not defile. Unclean people, unclean Gentiles do not defile. It is not what is out here that defiles you, folks. It is what comes from inside. It comes from the heart. You see, God's people, truly pure people, go beyond physical cleansing. In fact, it has nothing to do with physical cleansing. God's people have pure hearts. In fact, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart for they, and it's in the emphatic in the Greek, they and they only will see God. Here he is teaching us that purity has nothing to do without here. It has to do with the heart, and it has nothing to do with ethnicity. It goes beyond one nation. It is for everyone who believes. You see, this brings us to our third point and our uh, uh, conclusion, the, the purpose of this miracle. That is, why is it here when it is so similar to chapter 6? Let me suggest a few ideas. First, I have already mentioned this, but I want you to understand and I want you to rejoice in this truth. Jesus took his ministry and brought his kingdom and his gospel beyond the barriers of race and culture. That should thrill our hearts. 
He took his kingdom and his gospel to Gentiles. And as a result, they glorified the God of Israel. We participate in worldwide missions in extending the gospel beyond race and culture so people everywhere, everywhere will glorify the God of Israel because the Lamb of God has purchased with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation, and they will one day gather around his throne and worship, and they will with us glorify the true God of Israel. Second thing I believe that we are supposed to see here is that in both feeding miracles, we see this language, intentionally so, I believe, believe of this meal to come which we now all participate in together. There can be no overlooking the language of this meal and the meal that Mark records in chapter 14. There too, Jesus will take bread, give thanks for it, break it, and give it to his disciples using the same language. Now, I want you to understand that these feeding miracles were not communion meals, but I believe they prefigure the communion that we would enjoy together as followers of Jesus. After all, after all, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never die. He's talking about participating in the broken body and the shed blood uh, of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. This is a prefigurement of that event that we participate in now. You see, it's interesting to note that in this story, in verse 6, when Jesus gave thanks, that word is the word eucharisteo, from which we get our word eucharist. And some of you come from traditions where you remember the eucharist is used to speak of the Lord's Supper. In chapter 14, when the Lord's Supper is instituted, he gives thanks, the, the Eucharist, for this meal. We're supposed to notice. Finally, thirdly, beyond this present communion meal, this great feast prefigures the great messianic feast in the future, the marriage supper of the Lamb that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 25. See, in Isaiah chapter 25, we read these words, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. That's not what we do. That's coming. That's coming. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, the covering, uh, uh, which is overall, what's the covering? He tells us, even the veil, which is stretched out over the nations, and a veil separates. He's going to swallow it up. He will swallow up death for all times. We will have access to the very God of gods, and he will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This has always been viewed by both Jews and the church as a messianic prophecy. That is what the Messiah will do when he came, and Jesus did it in prefigurement, but the ultimate fulfillment will be, will be when he comes again. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 19, which says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Notice, this was given to her 
bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint given to her through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, uh, uh, these are true words of God because this is true and trustworthy. Do, do you see how important these two miraculous feeding stories are and why they were recorded so closely together? Because salvation now is for all who believe. Communion is now for all who believe. And the great messianic banquet, the great messianic feast to come is for all who believe and participate in the bread of life. His name is Jesus. That's what he's teaching us. Let's stand for prayer.